So thank you very much for that very kind introduction. I have to say, those introductions make me feel A, very old, B, they make me feel that it's setting me up for failure. So what I hope to do in the next 20 minutes, sorry, 40 minutes, is to give you a little bit of an idea of how big our impact is on the planet. And then what I'm gonna do is hopefully show you some history. Security alert, Mark is not allowed to use his computer. Right, okay, sorry. It's probably because I went to Cambridge. Right, so. <laughs> so what I want to do is try and give you an idea of us as a superpower and why we have to change the politics of the Anthropocene. I'm also going to use history as a tool to learn some lessons from it so we don't repeat it. So how large is our environmental impact? I'm going to build on the four fantastic talks we've had this morning, and some of the stuff I'm going to say is going to repeat and enforce what we've already heard. So firstly, the question is, are humans a geological superpower? So I'm going to use the planetary boundaries concept, which was by Romstroff and then Will Seffen uh, built on this. And they basically said there are nine different areas of the environment that humans are impacting and we're worried about it. And then the great and the good uh, got together and said, well, these are the boundaries and where we've got to. What I'm going to do is just use biogeochemical flows, climate change, of course, land use change, and biosphere integrity to try and actually pick up on these. But the one that I really like, and just for an aside, is the one that says novel entities. Because we all know that in labs in Oxford, Cambridge, UCL, they're producing new novel things that have never existed, and we have no idea what effect they have on the planet. Right, moving on to the... Uh, okay, so classic PC. Um, there are two wonderful pictures there that have disappeared. So <laughs> let's start with biogeochemical flows. So we've already seen how much nitrogen uh, we've been fixing due to fertilizers. Half the nitrogen fixed on the planet is now fixed by humans. The last time the nitrogen cycle was that disrupted was two and a half billion years ago. Climate change, we know that CO2 has gone up by 49% and methane has doubled. The last time we hit 415 uh, parts per million was about three million years ago. Sorry, it's because we're a recording. If you can just please speak closer to the microphone, otherwise I'll see if we can get you on this okay. <laughs> I promise not to move. You can tell I'm a, I'm a stride, I'm sorry. So, land use. If you take the whole of the land, we use 25% of it for humans, and we're also worried about the sixth mass extinction. So let's have a look at some of the other facts. We move more soil, rock, and sediment each year than all the natural processes combined. Damn those geologists. We have made enough concrete to cover the whole world, including the oceans, in a layer two millimeters thick. Damn the engineers. We make over 300 million tons of plastic per year which can be found in every ocean. And last week, there was a report that in the Marianas Trench, 11 kilometers deep, they found a plastic bag. Okay, Tesco's gets everywhere. Damn the chemists, okay? 
Now this is the one that really shocks people. The weight of land mammals is currently 30% humans, there's 7.6 billion of us, 67% is our livestock and pets, only 3% is wildlife and actually the animals and creatures which of course David Attenborough keeps going out to fill. 3%, that's all that's left in weight. So welcome to the Anthropocene, as nature said, a slice of Earth history during which people have become a major geological force. So Simon Lewis and I started to think about the Anthropocene, how we define it, where did it start, and we started to look at history through our environmental impact. And there's lessons in that history. And we suddenly realised that there are five major modes of human society. We have hunter-gatherer at the beginning, we then have the uh, domestication, the agricultural revolution, we then have the mercantile capitalism, the European expansionism, we then have the industrial revolution, industrial capitalism, we have the great acceleration post-1950, and we then have consumer capitalism. Now the key thing is that there are rules of engagement for each one of those transitions. Firstly, population of the world jumps up markedly with each one of those transitions. Two, the amount of energy every single person uses jumps up markedly. And thirdly, the amount of knowledge also exponentially grows. And for this conference, the fourth one is each one of those transitions is a major period of conflict and death. So let's have a look at the first stage, the early agriculture and the age of empire. So agriculture developed in 14 independent places and spread out from about 13,000 years ago. It is a conflict that has lasted 13,000 years and continues to this day, which is the isolation and either assimilation or extermination of hunter-gatherers by agrarian society. We also have the effect on the planet, which is early agriculture was so intensive that we started to produce methane from wet rice agriculture in the Far East, and also CO2 started to go up about 6,000 years ago due to deforestation. Interestingly enough, these are small changes, but we think they were just enough <coughs> to prevent us going into the next ice age. The next stage is the globalization of humanity. So, of course, this is probably the worst thing that ever happened in the world, which was Columbus accidentally banged into the Americas. I will not say discovered, rediscovered, or anything like that, and started off a huge exchange of species that hasn't been seen on Earth since we had a supercontinent. This is not a map. This is just Ben's uh, mapping of all the shipping lanes that happened in the 18th and 19th century. This is the amount we moved. So firstly, there's the genetic remixing of populations because the population of the Americas had been isolated for about 13,000 years. It's the start of colonization and global slavery, and it is the irreversible movement of species and crops and animals. So we gained potatoes, beans, peanuts, tomatoes, chilies, pineapples, quinine, they got wheat, sugar, rice, dandelions, horses, pigs, cattle, goats, sheep, chickens, smallpox, measles, typhus. 
Yeah, it doesn't seem to be a particularly fair exchange. Those diseases, though, are really important for the future of history because 10% of the world's population, 56 million people, died in the Americas due to those diseases that they had no natural defences against. It also meant that the forests and savannah grew back due to all of that agriculture ceasing and we actually have the first time a drop in CO2 because of that regrowth. It also meant that we isolated a whole continent and depopulated it. And of course, we needed that because we wanted all the goods, we wanted the silver, the gold and the food to actually feed the growing population in Europe. So what we did was we took people from Western Africa and put them in the Americas to work as we basically killed everybody else off. Third stage, the Industrial Revolution. James Watt and all of that, interestingly enough, it's not inevitable. It only happened once. Unlike agriculture, which was 14 places around the world that spontaneously happened over about a 5,000 year period, the Industrial Revolution occurred once in the Midlands in the 1840 and spread like a virus across Europe, into Japan, into America and into Canada very quickly. And it is still spreading across the world. The interesting thing is, why didn't the Chinese Empire of 5,000 years have an industrial revolution? Well, one of the key things is it was relatively peaceful for most of its existence, whereas this is the world powers, which are mainly European, and the percentage period of uh, time that they were at war. So basically the 15th, 16th century, um, yeah, about 80% of the time the world, uh, the world powers were at war, driving innovation, driving technology, and driving expansionism. Now, of course, the population couldn't grow, except it could because we had depopulated the whole of the Americas, which allowed enough food and resources to come into Europe to allow the population to burgeon and grow beyond the agriculture of Europe, which meant you had a population just there waiting to be able to go into the factories. So the Industrial Revolution also came with a change of our thinking, the emergence of socialism, and you'll notice also our wonderful evolution. It really wasn't very good for our health either. But not very much happened. So if you have a look at the Industrial Revolution, CO2 creeps up a bit with uh, electrification of the Industrial Revolution, it increases a bit more. But the big one then is the Great Acceleration post-1950. So the Great Acceleration and Neoliberalism. So the Bretton Woods Conference set up everything post-war. It was the desk drawer plans of the great and the good of the Allies that had spent the pre-war and most of the war coming up with the New World Order, United Nations, International Monetary Fund and World Bank. And it was incredibly successful. This is energy consumption from the world, as you can see, literally everything takes off from 1950s onwards. We've heard about the population and we'll hear about that this afternoon. It doubled from 1950 because we actually cured major diseases and we learned how to feed people. Again, we then had a change in the 1980s whereby neoliberalism, 
the idea that governments actually looked after people and looked after the global capitalist system then started to fall apart and was then taken apart. I love this quote from the International Monetary Fund, that well-known left-wing think tank. The last generation of economic policies may have been a complete failure. Oops. Right. So the true state of the world, as we've heard, 8 million children die needlessly every year. 800 million people go to bed feeling hungry every night, even though we have enough food for 12 billion. We also have 1 million people which still do not have access to safe, clean drinking water. Is it money that's stopping us saving the world? Well, this is GDP growth, admittedly um, from the 1600s, but I thought that'd be interesting. And the one that I always love to show people, UK GDP in 2018 was $2.9 trillion. The question then is, why are there any poor people in the United Kingdom? And this one, and I'm looking at the room because uh, you've exactly the right number of people here. Oxfam did a fantastic study which said, okay, we take the bottom half of the world, the 3.6 billion poorest people, how many billionaires does it take to equal that? So in 2010, it was 388 of the richest people in the world, mainly men, had the same wealth and owned the same as the bottom half. And of course, by 2015, it got to 62. Um, the last estimate in 2017 is 42 people. So that would be the same size as the audience here. You would own the same as the bottom 3.6 billion people in the world. A sobering thought. So how do we save our future? What is the new politics of the Anthropocene? Because, of course, I've now depressed you completely before lunch and therefore I thought at least if I gave you some big ideas you could go away and save the planet over lunch and thank me for it. So we have to go into a sixth mode of human society. We have to, we've called it post-capitalism, you can call it whatever you like. Nirvana, I don't care as long as we actually have that transition. So first thing, population is being controlled. Women's education is the key and it's going to top up at about 10 billion. But that's okay, we've got 12 billion uh, people's worth of food already. Um, energy use will have to increase, we know that, because most of the world do not have access. And trust me, knowledge, Pandora's box really is open because knowledge now is growing at such a huge rate. So we have four challenges for peace in the 21st century. Climate change is just one of them, environmental degradation, which I've listed through the Anthropocene, global poverty, and global security. So I'm gonna give you five big ideas for you to go away, research, and have a great lunch over. So, the first one is, we have to get to zero carbon emissions by 2050. This is uh, the brilliant global warming report uh, by the IPCC, which was probably the most subversive and politically uh, re uh, written report from the IPC ever. And Franz mentioned this in the first talk. Now the interesting thing is, I'll just reach over here, there is zero, okay? So the interesting thing is we could do it and we could reach zero straight away by 2050 and we could do it really fast at 18% drop per year. 
it increased CO2 increased by 2.5% last year. Oops. However, if we do it slower, then we have to have huge negative emissions and they have different pathways depending on how slow and how negligent we are about reducing it. Renewable energy is now a player, but the interesting thing is that we still have fossil fuels being installed. Even though the amount of renewables is twice that, we shouldn't be installing any fossil fuels anywhere, as was alluded to this morning. Renewables are competitive, but we have a major problem because fossil fuel subsidies, the IMF estimates that global subsidies are 5.3 trillion US dollars per year. That's twice the GDP of the United Kingdom, which is the fifth richest country in the world, despite Brexit. But this is not a failure of capitalism. This is the failure of the nation state and our international governance systems. 19 out of the 25 largest fossil fuel companies are part of fully state-owned. They want the petrochemical dollar, they want to make a profit, they will subsidise their companies to make sure they do. So blaming BP or Shell and other companies <coughs> that we can influence isn't what we need to do. We need to tackle the nation state and we need to actually look at responsibilities of states within the international system. The other idea is half earth. We actually decide that yes we can use half the earth but the other half we have to actually leave for nature to provide all the ecosystem services we require to actually live a healthy and safe life. Humans have cut down three trillion trees. That's half the trees on the planet. But as we heard, we are urbanizing very rapidly. So interestingly, the world is getting wilder and therefore people are actually densifying in big cities. So we have real opportunities to rewild and reforest vast quantities of the actual planet. In the United Kingdom, just to make sure that we think about it, um, at the moment, the UK has 12% of the UK is forested. I hate to point this out, the average for the EU is 34%. Yes, I have to say we did cut most of the forest down to build ships to keep the French out. But we don't have to do that anymore. Okay? Now, if we, and say Michael Gove was a little bit more sort of like uh, dynamic and a little bit more exciting, we could perhaps predict 18% of the country be forested by 2050. If we did that, 25% of that cut from now to zero by 2050 in the UK would be absorbed by our wonderful forest. And who doesn't love trees? So, China. China in the 1990s had a huge issue with deforestation and desertification, and they had 100 million hectares that they reforested. Interestingly, it was a really two-pronged approach because it was a win-win solution, which they always have to be. They reforested vast areas of the lowest plateau, but they also paid farmers to do it because they were desperately looking for a way of alleviating poverty in the west of the country as opposed to the richness of the east. So it was a way of actually 
saving the environment and moving money to parts of the country that they needed. Win-win. Change the politics. And by the way, if you don't recognize the actual symbolism of the picture, find a young person and they'll tell you, okay? <laughs> oh dear, actually some of them may be too young to actually uh, remember uh, V for Vendetta. Right, progressive taxation. The amount of money hidden by rich people uh, the Panama Papers were incredibly instructive. We know they're hiding money and they're investing in the wrong things. Universal basic income. The key thing about the planet is that we overconsume, And it doesn't make us happy. Trust me, I'm not any happier than my parents were in the 1970s when they were having a bit of struggle to make through hyperinflation. I don't think I'm any happier than they are, and I'm not convinced that my children with more gadgets than they know how to play with are any happier than I am. So therefore, how do we alleviate that requirement for consumption? Well, if you remove the actual fear of not having food, not having actual money, not having education, by giving everybody a basic income and saying, therefore you can choose to look after your elderly parents, you can choose to be an entrepreneur, you can choose to be an artist, or you can choose just to watch Netflix. Right. Focus on sustainable development. Again, we picked up on this. They are some of the most uh, idealistic and possible goals that have been set by the international community. And they all interlinked, as you can see, biosphere, society, and the economy. And now, of course, with the IPCC 1.5 degree report, Climate change is now fully integrated into it as it wasn't previously. Individual responsibility with global, within globalisation. Yes, I agree with the speaker early on that said it is governments that must change. Governments must push. But as individuals, we have a lot of power. You've seen that in this country, extreme rebellion some old people sticking themselves to trains, changes the political dynamics. Children going on strike. Yes, my daughter is on strike on this Friday, next Friday. I have no idea how to explain that to school, and I'm sure I'm going to be into trouble. Yeah, I'll pay the fine. So, those two. Greta, okay, a 16-year-old that stood outside her parliament with a placard, has changed the dialogue. And so therefore, individuals do have power. I think the idea of the Anthropocene being so big and so awful that we don't have power is incorrect. So these, I always get asked, what can I do? So, switch your energy supplier to a green supplier. Recycle, use your car less or get an electric car. Eat less, we can all do that. Uh, zero meat, stop flying. And a really powerful one, divest your pensions from investing in fossil fuels and make sure your university or your place of work do. Before you get uh, annoyed with me, yes, I've been trying to do that with UCL for the last 10 years. We're not getting anywhere. Right, and again, lastly, protest. Your voice is important. And of course, vote. Power of voting is still useful within a democracy. So we have a decision to make into the future. Do we have a good or do we have a bad Anthropocene? Can prosperity, well-being and peace be decoupled from environmental damage? 
There is a view that the only way you can have peace is by consuming and making lots of people have lots and lots of goods. We need to decouple that idea. Um, I hope I haven't uh, depressed you too much. I hope there was enough ideas in there to keep you going through lunch. And thank you for listening. And if you're interested in any more of the history or the debates about the Anthropocene, um, Simon Lewis and I have written a book called The Human Planet. And the reason there's two covers, because that did come up as a question, because somebody said, oh, I didn't know you'd written two books. No, the left one is the UK version. The right one is the American version. So, yeah. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>